All right, well, I want to welcome everybody across all of our campuses, uh, those of you tuning in online and uh, as well as our uh, evening services. Uh, really glad to have you today. You guys doing okay? It's good to see you today. And uh, we uh, are really excited because uh, next Sunday, February the 23rd, we're going to be launching our Northeast Campus in the Fishers area. In fact, there's a whole team at uh, Fall Creek Intermediate School this morning, and they're just kind of doing what we call a soft launch. And here's a few images from this morning of our Northeast Campus. And uh, we're just praying for Campus Pastor Nick Durham and this whole team all the volunteers that are there. And so if you live on the northeast side of Indy, I want to encourage you to check out the northeast campus. And better yet, I want to encourage you to be on mission with us. So jump on a serving team, invite friends and family to come uh, to our northeast campus launches uh, next weekend. And then I want to encourage you to uh, pull out your calendar or your phone and uh, write in uh, Wednesday, March the 4th at 7 p.m. It's going to be our next uh, worship night. And we're going to do uh, all campuses gathering together here at our Northwest campus for a night of worship. And we've been looking for uh, a reason to get all of our campuses together because it's pretty amazing that in four years we've gone from one campus to six. And we want to get everybody together again and worship together. We're going to be doing a series in March called We Are TPCC. And uh, we're going to be launching uh, new t-shirts. Um, we haven't had a new t-shirt in a while. This is a little glimpse of it. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't show you the back, but there's a whole really cool back to it, all right? But you got to come, all right? Uh, get, you, get your T-shirts, and uh, uh, we're going to blow the roof off this place as we come together as one united church. We're just going to be thanking God for what he's done. We're going to be looking to him uh, for where he wants to, to lead us next. So I want to encourage you to, to be here for our worship night, all right? Well, uh, today we are in week three of a four-part series of messages we're calling FOBO, which stands for Fear of Better Options. And the theme verse for this series is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It just simply says this, Trust God from the bottom of your heart and don't try to figure out everything on your own. I don't know about you, that's hard for me. Because I want to figure out everything on my own. And I think I can figure out everything on my own. It says, instead, listen for God's voice and everything you do, everywhere you go, he's the one who will keep you on track. Now, I believe in the wisdom of these verses, and I believe this to be true. But it's a little bit of a different thing to figure out how to apply the wisdom of those verses to your life. Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you listen for God's voice in this life? How do you know if he's the one who's kept you on track? Those are really, really great questions that we're just trying to explore Together, because when it comes to the world in which we live, there are all kinds of options in front of us. We live in a world of options, and we love us some options, don't we? It's like, don't limit me to one or two things, like show me a whole smorgasbord of options to choose from. In uh, my uh, high school economics class, um, my teacher was this uh, older, kind of really sweet guy by the name of Mr. Savage. Just such an awesome last name, and he was a savage. And uh, he, he was this, he, he had like these um, big uh, hearing aids, he was a little bit hard of hearing, but he's a really super sweet guy. And we would kind of mess with him a little bit, and I'm not exactly super proud of this, but it, it was funny. But instead of calling him Mr. Savage, we would oftentimes raise our hands and call him Mr. Cabbage, <laughs> which I was cruel, but we thought it was funny. And so 
Uh, apparently you didn't. And his, his, wife, uh, his wife is this little Hawaiian lady that worked part-time at McDonald's. They were just this amazing couple. And uh, I'll never forget, he invited the manager of the McDonald's his wife worked at to come in and speak to our high school economics class. I don't remember the guy's name, don't remember his talk, but I do remember him being really excited about this brand new marketing campaign that McDonald's was getting ready to launch at the time uh, that was going to coincide with a brand new state-of-the-art movie that had never been seen before about dinosaurs called Jurassic Park, right? This is pre-Chris Pratt, so I'm dating myself a little bit. And he said, uh, we're going to be launching this marketing campaign at McDonald's to coincide with the launch of this um, new movie. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to give customers the option, uh, instead of just medium and large drinks and fries, we're going to give them the option of an extra large drink and fries, and then a size above that. And we're going to call it dino-sizing. And dino-sizing later became known as supersizing. And four to 500 Jurassic Park movies later, like it's still a thing because we love us some options. In fact, if there's anything that the restaurant industry has learned is that you should have it your way. And we just fully expect to step up to the counter and the person on the other side of the glass is going to give us what option we want in our burrito or bowl, our pizza or flatbread, our footlong or wrap. In fact, did you know that many fast food restaurants nowadays have what they call a secret menu? Are you aware of the secret menu? Because if you're not, you're learning something today in church, all right? The secret menu has items on the secret menu that the regular menu does not have because the regular menu is for regular people. But the secret menu is for special people, or at least the people that Google secret menu before they go to the restaurant. And so if you have a craving for a Starburst smoothie or a peanut butter bacon cheeseburger, which are real things, by the way, on the secret menu, then you can have it your way because we love us some options. And it's not just food. But we customize everything nowadays, have you noticed? But more and more research is beginning to kind of show us that all of these options aren't necessarily helping us make better decisions. In fact, it's just leading to greater and greater indecision. Because uh, with all of these options in front of us, we're feeling overwhelmed and a bit anxious and a little bit depressed. Because with all these options, how do you decide? And what if I pick that option and it's the wrong one? What if I go down that path and I end up in a spiritual or emotional cul-de-sac? What if I choose the wrong one? What if I pick the wrong career or go for the wrong degree? Then what? And, and how do you know? And you add on top of all that the pressure that we feel as we compare our choices and decisions with everyone else's. Because uh, at a distance and through a filter, have you noticed that everybody else just seems to know what to do? And they just seems to know what choices to make and what decisions that they need to go after. And it just seems like everything they touch turns to gold. And their life is advancing, but I feel stuck. And they just got the promotion, but I'm still at entry level. And their family just seems so perfect. And their kids just made the travel team. And... I'm scrolling through social media on Valentine's Day just seeing all of these acute, amazing couples that it just makes me want to yak. And I don't care what Pastor Ryan says, there is the one, and they found it. <clears throat> and I feel a little bit left out. And so how do you know? All of this is 
a perfect storm for some serious FOBO, fear of better options, because I'm constantly in my head and I'm overthinking, I'm overanalyzing, and where do I go and what do I do and how do I know if God is speaking? And how would you even begin to know if that's his voice? How, how, do you, how can you sense God's direction in your life? It, maybe we might phrase it this way, like how, how do I know God's will for my life? And how much does God really care? Like, like to the granular like, decisions, like the big decisions I get, like maybe God has an opinion about, but when it comes to the smaller decisions, like does God really care? And does he really have something to say? Does he really want to speak into my life? And so if God would just tell me, then I would do it. Have you ever said that? If God would just send me a text message and just spell it out, that would be great. I would do it. The question that I have is, would you? If God would just show up and sit down next to me at a park bench somewhere and just have a conversation with me, looking and talking a lot like Morgan Freeman, because that's kind of how I envision God to look and to talk. And if he were just to tell me, this is what you should do, like, I would gladly do it. And I guess the question is, is that would you? Like, would you do what God told you to do? If he were just to rip open the sky and go, peekaboo, here I am. This is what you should do, and this is where you should go. Would, would I really? And so I want to look at a passage of Scripture today that can offer a little bit of insight into this in Matthew chapter 14. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, go ahead and turn there. <coughs> I want to look at a passage that is uh, somewhat familiar and for, for good reason um, because it's a pretty amazing story. In fact, if you don't know the Bible super well, if you haven't been in church in a while, you probably are going to be somewhat familiar with this um, passage. And the setting here, like what just took place before what we're getting ready to read is that Jesus and the disciples have just fed 5,000 people. Which I don't know, like I've never done that personally. Like I'm just guessing that uh, that would take it out of you. Like that would be a long day. And I would expect them to want to get back to their hotel room or wherever they were staying, get a good night's sleep. We'll debrief about it later at breakfast the next morning. But that's not what happens. They actually have a really, really long night. And the question that I have as I read this is why? Like why? Now, before we read the passage, I just want to say this real quickly. When it comes to hearing God's voice and sensing his direction for your life, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is simply this. God is speaking. Like, just in case you were wondering, just in case you had that question, God has spoken, God is speaking, God will speak. He is speaking right now. He is offering guidance and direction for your life. Does God care about the big decisions and the small decisions? You bet he does. How's God speaking? Well, he speaks through his word. He speaks through his spirit. He speaks through that, what we might call that still small voice in your life. He speaks through the counsel of godly men and women in your life. He is always speaking. He is always providing direction. That's the good news. Bad news. Bad news. You ready for bad? I don't think this will get any claps. Bad news, you may not always like what he has to say. Bad news is he might say something that makes you a little uncomfortable. Bad news is, is that what he says might actually require you to take a step of faith that you don't want to take. The bad news is, is that it might be a little painful. 
There have been lots of times in my life where I've been praying and praying and praying. I'm like, God, would you please speak? Would you please speak? And I just get this sense that he goes, Aaron, I have spoken. I am speaking. You just don't like what I have to say. And so I'm just going to keep saying it until you get it. And so it's with that in mind that I want to look at Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. It says, immediately after this, immediately after what? After the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus insisted. I want you to hold on to that word because this doesn't say Jesus suggested. Jesus had an idea. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm insisting that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile... The disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. A storm came up. About three o'clock in the morning, that's how long they'd been out there. They're in the middle, they're in the middle of the night. And Jesus came toward them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. I would be too. And in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. Now, I just want to point out real quickly, this had to be a pretty massive storm. Because these guys, most of them anyway, are pretty experienced fishermen. Like they knew these waters pretty well. This would not have been their first storm. But for whatever reason, this one took them by surprise. For whatever reason, this one sent them into a panic. And they see Jesus and they're so afraid and their vision is so limited that they don't assume it's Jesus. They assume it's a ghost. And then it says in verse 27, Jesus spoke to them at once. And the first words out of his mouth were, don't be afraid. Take courage. He didn't say be encouraged. He says take it. Take the courage I'm giving to you because I am here. That's the basis of the courage. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And I love that so much because we all know that guy. We all know that guy who sees something pretty extraordinary that he's never been trained or has experience to do, who thinks he can do it. Maybe you're that guy. We were like, I think I can bench 350. I think I can ride a bull. I think I can weld that back together. Well, why do you think that? You ever done it before? Nah. Why do you think you can do it? I saw somebody else do it. That's how I can know. And I love, uh, I love uh, Peter's willingness to, to jump in and do this. And I love Jesus' response even better. He goes, yes, come. <laughs> Jesus could have said, Peter, you don't know what you're asking. Peter, I got the whole deity thing going for me. Peter, you can't do this. You're not God. And instead, Jesus says, yes, come. That, that's actually a whole sermon in and of itself. Just the kind of confidence that Jesus has in Peter. And so, I love this, it says, uh, so Peter went over the side of the boat, and he walked on the water toward Jesus. That's amazing. But, verse 30, when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified, and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Really? Really? To which if I would have been in Peter's situation, I would have said, I just walked on water. I think that qualifies me for having some faith. But then Jesus said this. He goes, why did you doubt me? And when they climbed back into the boat, 
the wind and the wave stopped. Did you notice that little detail? That's when the wind and the wave stopped. I would have wanted the wind and the wave to stop before I walked on the water. But it stopped after. And then here's the disciples' response. They, they worshipped him. Saying, you really are the son of God. First thing that I want to point out to you is how out of control this whole situation would have felt like to the disciples. It would have felt out of control. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you're not in control. How about every time you get into a plane, a boat, or a car and you're not driving? And there have been lots of times where I've been in a situation like that, and I feel like I could drive this better, I wish I was in control, and I'm just getting knocked around by the wind and the waves, or the traffic, or the sporadic driver, or whatever it is. And maybe for you right now, this is a little bit what life feels like. It just feels out of your control. And the wind and the waves right now are blowing against your marriage, or they're blowing against your health, or they're blowing against your finances or your emotions. And you're doing everything within your power to try to keep things under control. But no matter how hard you try to keep things under control, you're just reminded that you're not in control. And you thought you made the right decision. And you thought you made the right choice. And you thought you were honoring God by that option. But the wind and the waves, they just continue to rage. No matter how hard you try. And it's making you angry and it's making you confused and frustrated and sad. And when you get angry, confused, frustrated, and sad, then it just blurs your vision even more. And you begin to wonder if this whole following God thing is really worth it because if the storm won't calm down by following God, then what good is following God anyway? As I was studying this passage this last week, I had kind of a random thought. And right in the middle of studying it, I, I just asked this question. Why is this even in here? Why, why is this passage even in here? Why, why is this story even necessary for us to, to know? Because Jesus didn't preach a sermon or a lesson. Nobody got fed or healed. Um, there wasn't even any religious leaders for Jesus to beat up on. And that's always a good time. No, all it really is is Jesus sends the guys away because he needs to, to pray. It's the middle of the night. They get caught into a storm. Jesus walks out to them on the water. Uh, he tells Peter to come to him. Peter sinks. The end. Like, why is this in here? What, what, what is it that God's trying to teach us through this? Why are the disciples in a boat in the middle of the night in a storm that they can't control? How about this question? Why is Jesus walking out to them on the water at 3 a.m. anyway? How about this question? Who put them in the boat in the first place? Jesus. Look at verse 22. It says, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side while he sent the people home. So Jesus put them in the boat, seemingly for no good reason. Seemingly. And oftentimes, that's kind of where we go with it, isn't it? At least for me, when life doesn't seem to be working out, <clears throat> when my spouse doesn't respond the way that I wanted them to, if I lose the job or if the diagnosis comes back as something really, really scary and the wind and the waves are raging and I can't make sense of it, then I just simply reduce it to, well, God's the one to blame. He's the one that's put me here. He's the one that's abandoned me here. And I don't know what to do with it. There's four biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, 
One of the other biographers, a guy named Mark, actually records this same story, but he includes a little detail that Matthew doesn't for, for whatever reason. And it actually, I think, sheds some light on why this is in here and why Jesus put them in the boat. Uh, check out Mark's um, telling of this same story. <clears throat> Mark includes this. <clears throat> he says, about 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. Now, check this out. He intended... To go past them. What is that about? Like, is Jesus racing them? Is he trying to get across to the other side of the lake before them? Is he showboating here? Is he like walking by doing the moonwalk? What's up, fellas? I did not have a chance to practice that, by the way. Which is why that was so poorly executed. All right? Like, what is Jesus, is, is this one of those uh, things in which uh, it's like you go into the store, you turn down the aisle of the grocery store, and you see the person that um, you hope didn't see you because you don't want to get caught up in a conversation with them because you know that conversation will be at least 30 minutes. And so you see them, you're like, whoa. And then they see you, and you're like, oh, oh, hey, there, you, didn't see you over there. Is this one of those things, Jesus walking by and he's intending to pass him by like he didn't want the disciples to see him and he's like, oh, hey, fellas, fancy seeing you out here on the middle of the sea that I put you out on. Is that what's going on? It says, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror. Why, why, why is this in here? I think part of the reason is that they were learning what you and I have to learn is simply this. Obedience is never a guarantee that God will spare us from adversity. And oftentimes this is where I get tripped up because I wrongly assume that God will reward my obedience by making all my problems go away. And that's never been part of the deal. If you notice, the storm didn't end until Peter got back into the boat. The verb for to pass by in... Um, what Mark tells us is actually a, a Greek word. Uh, it's pronounced parakomai. And don't be too impressed by my enunciation of that because I learned in Greek class, if you don't know how to enunciate it, just say it confidently and real fast. And it'll sound like you know what you're talking about. All right? So parakomai. And it simply means to pass by. That's the word. That's the verb. And it's actually a Greek word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, something called the Septuagint. And it, it was used to describe a technical term referred to as a theophany. Now hang with me because this is super important. A theophany is this. Those defining moments when God makes a striking and temporary appearance in the earthly realm to a select individual or group for the purpose of communicating a message. The purpose of this passage was not that Jesus was going to calm the storm or to make the disciples' fear go away. The purpose of the passage is that Jesus wanted the disciples to experience his power and presence in their life. Wow, I thought I'd at least get an amen or a clap or something. That's good. That was the whole week's study right there for that one moment, and you missed it. The purpose of the whole passage isn't that God would just make the waters calm down. The purpose of the whole passage is that when we are frantically looking for God to direct us, he would say, I'm here. Trust me and follow me one step at a time. And there's a couple of examples of that term in the Old Testament. One is whenever God like puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and, 
and he, he kind of shields Moses' eyes so that it wouldn't blind Moses when he passed him by. But there's another example when God told Elijah to stand on the mountain for the Lord is about to pass by. It's the exact same verb that Mark uses to describe Jesus intending to pass them by. And there's a pattern to all of these examples. God is trying to get your attention. And he'll use any means necessary. For Moses, it was a burning bush. For Saul, it was a blinding light. For the disciples, it was scary darkness and the wind and the waves. And what about for you? And each time, he is getting ready to call each of them to do something extraordinary. It's going to impact their life in a big way. And in each situation, every single person that God was calling felt afraid. And each time they, they said yes, they experienced the power and the presence of God in their lives. And so when Jesus came to the disciples intending to pass them by, he wasn't blowing them off. He wasn't showboating. He wasn't doing some neat trick. He was revealing his divine presence and power that they were about to experience the same presence and power that is available to you and to me if we are willing to take a step. And see, that's really the question is, <clears throat> will you step into it? See, there were 12 people on the boat. They were all literally and figuratively in the same boat. And they saw the same thing, and they experienced the same thing, and they felt the same thing. It was dark for all of them, yet only one of them took a step into the presence and power of Jesus. And I can't say that I blame the other 11. I mean, if you're in the middle of a storm, out in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, being in the boat seems safer than being outside of it, except when you're with Jesus. And I love Peter's question. It offers us a lot of insight. See, see um, Peter didn't just like dive over the boat. Peter stopped first and he asked this question. Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And I think there's a lot of questions that Peter could have asked in that moment. I think he could have said, hey, Jesus, if that's really you, could you come a little closer? Jesus, if that's really you, could you turn the lights on and could you turn the waves down and calm the wind so that way we could get a clear vision of who you are and then I'll actually take a move outside of, of the boat. Could you show yourself to me, Jesus? That's not what he says. Instead, he says, Jesus, tell me that it's you. Tell me to come to you and I'll walk on the water. And I think that's really an important distinction to make because Peter is not a thrill seeker. This is not a story about extreme sports. This is a story about obedience, which, by the way, is at the very root of making better decisions in your life. This means that before Peter was going to get out of the boat, he first wants to make sure that Jesus thinks this is a good idea. And then he makes the move. He asks for Jesus' feedback. Here's an important question when you're trying to discern what path to take and what option to choose is are you asking for feedback from a variety of sources? Are you taking the time to listen more than you are to talk and to explain yourself? See, your quiet time with God, whenever you take that, whether that's early morning or midday or late day, doesn't, doesn't really matter. It's not just about what you read. It's not just about what you say. It's about taking the time to really listen. 
And God speaks through his word and God speaks through his spirit. And God often speaks through the voices of multiple people. In fact, scripture tells us that plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. And so how's God speaking collectively? One of the things that I've, I've, I'm learning to do, I continue to have to learn to do it, is when I'm faced with a decision and I don't know what to decide or where to go, I just start asking lots and lots of questions and then I just shut up and I listen. Instead of interjecting what I think or maybe defending or explaining, and, and oftentimes I don't necessarily like the feedback that I get, but it still informs and directs my path. So this is what Peter was doing. And you and I maybe need to learn to do more of it. He was discerning between what we might call an authentic call of God and then maybe just a foolish or selfish impulse. And can we be honest? Like, uh, there's, this happens a lot in the church. Oftentimes, we use these little words right here. God is calling me. And we use those to justify pretty much any decision we want to make. And we got to be so careful about that. Now, I want to be very clear here. Please don't misunderstand me. I believe that God does call and God does speak and maybe that's very well where he's leading you. But I've heard a lot of people abuse and misapply those little words. Meaning, I've heard people use those terms to justify breaking a commitment. I realize I'm breaking a commitment. I know that I'm hurting these people, but God's calling me. Is he? I've heard people use those terms to walk out on a marriage. I've heard people use that phrase to neglect their kids. I've heard people use that phrase to hurt people that were depending upon them. And Peter wants to be really sure here. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. Because big decisions require big wisdom and discernment. Big, big decisions require listening more than, than talking. Here's another question that we all need to ask when it comes to making better decisions is simply this one right here. What, what's, what's your boat? What's your boat? Because chances are you need to define what your quote-unquote boat is, and then you'll know what the next step you need to take is because God's always calling you out of it. So your boat represents safety and security, whatever it is, apart from God himself. Your boat is whatever you run to to cope when life gets really scary and unpredictable. <clears throat> your boat is whatever gives you the illusion of control. Your boat is whatever makes you so comfortable that you don't want to give it up and it's actually keeping you from joining Jesus on the waves. Your boat is where you go to sit and nurse your insecurities and hide from making courageous calls and tough decisions. Your boat is often the secrets that you're hiding from everyone else. You want to know what your boat is? Your fear will usually tell you. And the question is, what is it that produces the most fear in me, especially when I think about leaving it behind and stepping out in faith? And chances are, that's what I need to do. And so Peter steps over the side, and for a few incredibly glorious moments, he's doing it, man. He is actually walking on water. And could you imagine what that would have looked like? He probably didn't look very graceful. He's probably just like... You know, he's just like, he's looking like a, you know, deer on ice skates or something. I'm sure that it didn't look very graceful, but the disciples would have all been dumbfounded. And he's doing it. Until what? He takes his eyes off Jesus. The storm was the same. The storm never dialed down. And then he picked back up again, and that's when he began to sink. It wasn't like Jesus turned the lights on, and then as Peter's walking, then he turned the lights out, and then he didn't know where to go. No, the storm is the exact same. The only thing that changed in the passage is where Peter was looking. 
And he took his eyes off Jesus and he focused them on his circumstances. And that's when he began to sink. And I love Jesus' response. It's, there's so much grace and compassion in it. He just simply reaches out and he catches him. And then he just simply asks a question. And I don't think it was accusatory. I think that it was just informational. He just goes, you have little faith. And Jesus is equating faith not to irrational belief. He's equating faith to vision. Where are you looking and to who are you trusting? This made no rational sense, naturally speaking. There is no way that Peter should have been walking on the water. The, the, the X factor here was the presence of Jesus. And Peter took his eyes off of him. In other words, he broke his trust in the one who was holding him up. Several years ago, I remember hearing about... Um, Mother Teresa, and there was a young man that walked up to her and he asked if she would pray for him. And she said, sure, what can I pray for you about? And he said, well, I'm facing a lot of big decisions in my life and I was wondering if you would pray that I have clarity to make these decisions. And I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty decent prayer request. In fact, I think I've probably asked that at, at one time or another. And that's why Mother Teresa's response to him is so shocking. She said, no. I will not pray that you have clarity for your decisions. <laughs> I just thought, man, that's amazing. Like, like, I, like I've, as a pastor, I've had people ask me to pray for them all the time, and I don't think I've ever told them no. And people have asked me to pray for some pretty weird things. <laughs> hey, pastor, would you pray for my hamster? Would you pray for my iPhone? It's not working right. Would you pray for my hangnail? And I'm always just like, sure. Like, uh... Where's your hamster? Uh, just, I'll pray right now. And I'm not even joking about that. All right, so, uh, but I've never told anybody no. I've never said like, no, I'm not going to pray for that, but I will pray for that. I've never done that. She told him no. But then what she said next was so key. She said, uh, I've, I've never had trust. That's Mother Teresa saying that. Or she said, I've never had clarity. She said, what I have had is trust. She said, I will not pray that you have clarity for your decisions. I will pray that you have trust because trust is way better. Here's uh, the challenge in um, preaching a... Here's the challenge in preaching a series of messages on making better decisions is that I know how some of you are wired up. Uh, some of you want me to actually like give you like the exact things to do and list them all out in alph alphabetical order for how to make decisions, and the, in the, in the, in the honest answer to that is I can't make those decisions for you, and honestly, like, I, like I don't know. Like, there's lots of decisions in my life right now that I'm, I want clarity on, and I don't have clarity, but God is saying to me through that still, small voice, and through his word, and through the counsel of godly people, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Where, where are you looking? Where are your eyes? And I know when I was teaching all of my kids to swim when they were really little and they would get up to the side of the pool and they're contemplating jumping in and they were so scared. And one of the things that I noticed is that um, their fear would increase as their eyes would begin to dart all around. And I'm like right there in front of them talking to them, but they're not looking at me. They're looking, they're looking behind me and they're looking at the water and they're looking behind them. And in every single instance, as I'm encouraging them to jump, I would, I would say, look at me. Look at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me and jump. And right now, I know that maybe some of you are in a storm, and it seems like the rational thing to pray for is God calm the storm. 
Right now, some of you are facing lots of indecision. It seems like the rational thing to pray for is, God, would you give me clarity? I know right now some of you are like saying, God, I'm looking for some answers. And I just want you to know Jesus is saying to you, I am the answer. Like, I'm looking for some solutions here, God. He goes, I am the solution. I'm looking for some direction here. He goes, I, I am the direction. And would you take a step out of your boat, whatever that is, and would you just begin to keep your eyes on me? It is a shaky walk, one foot at a time. You want to know what a faithful life of a person who's following after Jesus in the midst of a world that is uncertain as it is? You want to know what it looks like? That's what it looks like. None of this like calm, steady Eddie, like I know what I'm doing, nothing to see here. One foot in front of the other. No, no, no. It's, it is one shaky step at a time. Stop looking at your feet. Stop looking at the waves. Stop looking at the wind. Stop being consumed by the darkness and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in front of you. And you do, you do the next best thing. You, do, you make the next best decision. You say the easy thing would be to leave. I'm going to stay. The easy thing would be to lose heart and to blame. I, I'm not going to do that. The easy thing would be to just give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to stay in it. The easy thing to, to do would be to say, I don't think this thing is working out. No, I'm going to stay and let God bear some fruit in my life. And that takes a while, by the way. That's the, that's the hard thing. God is speaking. You may not always like what he has to say, but he offers you his presence and his power. And he wants you to experience that today. Father, we come to you right now and I ask that here in just these next few moments that we would not go anywhere, that we would not try to beat the traffic out the door, that we would not try to just get on with our day without just stopping long enough to listen. So we just want to hear from you. Please speak into my life. But more than you offering specific direction, you first offer your presence and your power. And we so desperately need to experience that. So we're just going to be quiet for just a moment or two. Because we want to hear from you. And we are not asking for clarity. We're praying for trust. And we ask this in your name. Amen.